boat fights when I thought I was going to die. It's August. I was just out yeah. in 10 degrees getting what? a flight with doors up. Come on, <laughs> deal with it. Yeah, I think the, cold, the coldest one I ever did is we flew doors off. We were flying sheep on the um, Escalante. Nice. Like all that country in oh, November. Yeah. yeah. So cold. Yeah, and you're just yeah. like, I can't even do this. I remember, are we recording? Yeah. I like okay. some, <laughs> some, some background B-roll. Sure. Obviously, yeah, we, if someone said that we yeah. can't, we'll cut it. No, but I like good. background. Sure. No, but I remember one time... Um, you know, you're like that little kid in the Christmas story. You're like you, got, yeah. you have every piece of clothing on that you can, yeah. you can possibly, you know, I'm, I'm like this. And we're, we're flying around doors off. And I remember at one point somebody was like, hey, I got to, you know, I got to pee. Can you, can you touch down so I can pee? And uh, we touched down and I went to like get out. And I'm like, I, I, I even have a seatbelt on. I'm, <laughs> I like had been so, flying, I've been flying around for a full fuel cycle, you know, doors open with no seatbelts. So. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> you guys think did differently in Utah than we did in Montana, I guess. <laughs> too much, too much clothes. Yeah. yeah. We just got done catching some elk around from Evanston over to Morgan. Uh-huh. And it, so we started the days at about eight, nine degrees and you're getting that flight with the yeah, doors with completely the off. It's oh. only a short little flight, but damn, it can be cold with, quick. With the wind chill? Yeah. Oh. At, at yeah. 100 miles an hour, that <sighs> it tends to blow through you. Are you still flying Utah HP? Do they do those? Well, we do UHP on surveys a lot, um, yeah. but on capture work, he's in a little it. 500. Yeah. yeah. So that's all. Cool. Yeah. All right. You ready? We'll do a little intro? Yes, yeah, do a little intro. I loved all that stuff we just talked about, though, too. <laughs> yeah. Well, we can get into it. <laughs> yeah. All right, so we got uh, we're back for a podcast. Um, I got Brady Miller and myself, Trail Kreitzer. Uh, it's the the Go Hunt, the the Big Hunt Guys podcast is what we're going to call it. Big Hunt Guys, it's true. Yeah, we're up here uh, at Salt Lake at the Western Hunting Expo. Uh, we got a booth, and we thought it'd be a perfect opportunity to um, maybe call in some favors from some of my cronies that I used to work with when I worked for the the Division of Wildlife in Utah. So I've got Covey Jones and uh, Kent Hershey. Um, in the booth today, uh, you guys are with the Utah Division of Wildlife. Um, give me, give me just a real quick, like what it is that you do for, you know, an introduction to yourselves. Yeah, sure. Kobe uh, Jones, um, I'm the big game coordinator for the state. Okay. So, um, in in Utah, we kind of ha- we have a team of big game guys. So there's me, Kent, uh, Riley Peck, Chad Wilson, and our migration coordinator Daniel Olson. Mm-hmm. So we all work together to fill different parts in, and I think the way it works, like Kent and I share the majority of the job, um, and the way it works is Kent gets all the fun stuff, and then I get all the stuff he doesn't want to do. Kent, what would you? Yeah, yeah that's about like That's that. about so, how it works. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, Kent, you found your niche. I am. Um, yeah, my name's Kent Hersey. I'm the Big Game Projects Coordinator. So I, I help Kobe, as he said, with the day-to-day operations in the Big Game Program, but then also coordinate all our captures, transplants, uh, overseer research projects, and okay. so a lot more of the fun stuff. How long uh, How long have you been with the division, both of you? I've been here since 2005. Okay. Yeah, and I'm coming up on almost 14 years. Okay. Kobe, you, you didn't, you, you've kind of had a progression, right? Like yeah. You started in, in Habitat, right? You yeah. You did some Habitat work. Yeah. Yeah, so I'm, um, you know, my educational background, uh, I did a master's in plant wildlife at BYU, but my master's was... Uh, habitat specific specifically i was working to develop plant materials for restoration mm-hmm. um trying to increase the supply of native forbs for mule deer okay so uh, it was a great master's project i really enjoyed it and then as i went to work for the division i was a habitat biologist for a while i was a research biologist for a while and then i stepped over oh geez it's been 
10 years ago, a little over 10 yeah. years ago now, over into the wildlife section managing populations. It's been that long. Yeah, it's Jeez. pretty crazy. Yeah, 10 years, time flies, huh? So, yeah. That's Sounds like crazy. a lot of fun in there you had. I'm you know, sure. I, yeah, I, I, I still, and, and Kendall called me a plant geek, but I still love, <laughs> I still love habitat. I still love, like, assessing, all right, you know, because it's, it's the key to a lot of what we do. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Yeah, that's kind of the reason we wanted to have you guys in today. Um, one, you know, you guys, you, you're both interested in big game and hunting, obviously, for the job. I know you, you guys both hunt. Um, you know, we're obviously interested in hunting and the you know, yeah. perpetuity of hunting. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a resident of Utah. I live there in Cedar City. Um, you know, passionate about mule deer, elk, um, antelope, all, all big game opportunities in Utah. So that's really kind of what we wanted to, to have you in and, and maybe talk specifically about mule deer. Sure. Um, you know, I know that you guys have done a lot of research in the state of Utah, uh, you know, a lot of collar data. We've put more money into habitat restoration. So I just kind of wanted to flesh that out, you know, ask some questions and kind of get. So I guess just to jump in, like, what what would you say? Like, what is the current state of, you know, mule deer in Utah? Like, how, how, does, how does mule, how are mule deer managed in the state of Utah? And what's kind of the, the current state? You want me to start with that one, Ken? Go for it. Okay. So I think one of the things that, that people always forget is that mule deer populations always oscillate. Mm -hmm. They oscillate between, you know, highs and lows, right? And right now, we're not, obviously, we're not at a historic low, but we're not at a historic high either. Mm -hmm. So our, our most recent historic high was 2015, probably 2015. It started to taper off a little bit in 2016, but still a really high year. And our model population estimates for those years were over 380,000 deer, mm -hmm. which in Utah, I mean, we grew from, we grew 100,000 deer from about 2000, 2010 through 2015. Oh, wow. And since then, we've just had conditions line up that haven't been conducive to, to population growth. Mm -hmm. um, and there's a lot to that. Yeah. But we've lost deer every year since 2015 our our model population estimate last year was about 314,000 um and i know just looking at survival rates over the last year we we lost deer again in 2021 so when we model our populations for 2021 it's going to come in a little lower than last year okay and, yeah. and and primarily i mean what 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 do you see as the bottleneck i mean like what i mean obviously you have mule deer herds that swell you know we grew what a hundred thousand deer in five years which yeah. is incredible i mean what was it about that time period that we allowed us to grow deer and what since then has been kind of the you know the decline so going back to, to 2010 to through 2015 what we saw was we had a period of really light winters okay. which is great for deer they they survive really well don't have that 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 big mortality on adults or fawns during that time period. But then we also had some good summer monsoons. So that allowed them to put on good fat in the, the summertime and the fall time. And so they, they went into fall good and healthy. They survived the winter well, and then they had good production. And mm -hmm. so that allowed us to take off on most of our populations. Yeah. Now, contrast that with what we've seen lately. We've had two extreme droughts, 2018 and 2020, um, some of the hardest we've ever seen in Utah. So that hurts your population through initial fawn production in june um, but then also you can have mortality caused because they just aren't getting enough to eat right 
And then we also even alternated that. You say you'd have these severe droughts, and then you'd have some really harsh winters, like 2017, horrible winter, uh, yeah. 2018, 2019, big winter. So then when you have these alternating patterns and you just keep getting stuck and nowhere to, no chance yeah. to grow. It's, it's essentially a perfect storm, right? You, yeah. have, you have dry you know, dry springs, dry summers, and then a hard, you know, hard winter where you get freezing temperatures and crusted snows and, you know, you're, yeah. you're burning a bunch of calories to try to get feed. Yeah, I mean, when you really look at what drives mule deer populations, there are a lot of things we can do to help them grow, and we do those. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, that's the whole reason between, behind all the collar studies is identifying limiting factors by unit and then addressing those limiting factors. But when you take a step back and say, okay, we can identify predators as a limiting factor on this unit. We can identify roads as a limiting factor on this unit. We can identify whatever the cause of mortality is by percentage of that population. We start to attack those. And none of that matters until the climate lines up. Mm-hmm. So, yes, we have to do that. Like when you're, when, you're, when you're fighting for mule deer or working to grow mule deer herds, you've got to identify those limiting factors. And you've got to address them. And in addition to that, you've got to have the right climate to get them to grow. Yeah. And when we hit that, we see growth. Yeah. Like it's, it's possible. Um, and when we don't, they struggle. Yeah. I mean, we, we used to manage, it's been oh, a number of years ago, we managed in regions, right? So we had general regions, and you could, you know, hunt, you could buy a southern region, you know, permit or draw a southern region permit. And then since then, we've gone to a unit-by-unit unit management strategy, right? I mean, does that strategy, I mean, do you guys, do you like that? Because now we can kind of tailor and fine-tune our management for an individual unit based on what that unit's facing. I mean, I know, take, for example, the Pine Valley, right? I look at the statistics, you know, the Pine Valley, you're seeing herds that are doing really well, right? Populations are great. Buck to doe ratio seem pr- pretty good. So that unit obviously has a different set of factors than maybe another unit does, like the Penguin Lake or the Dutton or the, the you know, some of the others, right? Um, let me maybe talk a little bit about management of mule deer. Like, how, how does Utah manage herd by herd? Can't, I'll start. Yeah, sure. So, okay, so... What, what year was it when we went unit by unit, Kent? Was that? Oh, I believe it was right around 09. 09? I was going to say it's been 10 to 12 years ago, I, maybe. Yeah. I think we redid the plan in 09, and that was the start of it. So <clears throat> what, what that's really allowed us to do is tailor buck permits by unit. Mm-hmm. Right? We always managed on the herd unit basis, but we hunted at the regional basis. And so what it allows us to do is adjust more accurately the number of hunters on the landscape to get the results that we want at the end of the day so i i don't know trail and this is what's really hard i don't know that that helps populations sure but what it does is it says hey we're not gonna all run to one area in one corner of the state Mm -hmm. and everybody hunt that we're gonna hunt that at a level that when we're done hunting it we still have the agreed upon number of bucks in the landscape Mm -hmm. right and and I actually do like it. Sure. It's, it's been a great, in, in my perspective, it's been a great change. Because if not, I, you, I mean, I, I don't know if overhunting is the right word, but you could end up with crowding issues. You could end up with lower buck doe ratios than you've agreed upon. You know, in our management plans, we've always said we'll manage to this range of buck doe ratio postseason, mm-hmm. right? And if you're prescribing tags by a region, you can't hit those, those goals or objectives. And so it just sets you up for failure. This way, it allows us to tailor each individual buck hunt to the area, yeah. and we're, we're getting pretty good at this. Like, yeah. it's 
the, I think the biggest advantage is we used to run some units, uh, a couple examples, Monroe, Vernal, um, they used to always run 10 to 12 buck to doe ratios, even though the regional ratio is always like 15 to 20. Yep. And so what it allowed, you know, even though the regional average was good, we always had these low units, and so people always were, were not, weren't happy because they weren't seeing big bucks. Sure. And so it allowed us to target those and get those up to where they needed to be. So how do you determine um, which units are getting what buck-to-doe ratios then? How are you looking at that, like, throughout the whole state, or just different areas should be this, or? So we have 20 biologists across the state, and each one is responsible for two or three units, just depending on the size of their units. And they'll go out and do postseason classifications where they're looking at the number of bucks, the number of does, and the number of fawns across the, the whole unit. And so they go all to all the different winter ranges on that unit that they know about. And they just classify them. Mm -hmm. And so we're trying to get that target. Right now, a lot of our units are managed at 15 to 17. Mm -hmm. And then we also have units managed at 18 to 20. But we do set those in the statewide plan. Yep. So we work. <laughs> Utah, I don't know. We, we have a very involved public process. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and um, as we work this week, we're, we meet together as what's called WAFLA. The Western Association of Fish and Wildlife Agencies, and sometimes when we talk to our counterparts about how much we involve the public in our different processes, um, they're they're kind of taken back. You know, there's there's different attitudes in every state. There's pluses and minuses in every state, but we've set a culture here of we're going to try to listen to our sportsmen and try to manage mm -hmm. within the biological parameters as much as we can, like they want us to manage. Sure. So, you know. Yeah, when we decide we're going to manage from 15 to 17, from 18 to 20, we're going to manage this is limited entry. That's all uh, developed by a committee, a diverse committee, 15-plus people. After that, we present that recommendation six times before it's finalized. That's crazy. So we, we, we get as much public input as we can mm -hmm. from the interested parties and say, did we hit the mark? Does it need to be tweaked? Mm -hmm. Is sure. there something you want to see change? And then we manage to those metrics. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, social science, right, that goes into, I mean, sure. I don't know if it's 50-50 or what it is, but it, there's a large percentage of social science and what, you know, what, this, what people want, right, in, right. in a hunt. That, and that kind of brings me back, like, I, the point I wanted to make is, um, you know, unit by unit management and hunting, you're right. Like, I, I, get, the, I get the fact that it, uh, you know, it doesn't necessarily ma manage population. Sure. But, and kind of the point I wanted to get into, maybe just a quick topic of discussion is, you know, I, I talk to a lot of people, right, that hunt, and, and you, you hear a lot of people say there's too many permits. It's, you know, you're killing off the population, right? That's imp impacting the population. So I was hoping, you know, maybe you could talk just a briefly, like, what, what role does hunting play in a population of mule deer? And, I mean, you know, you talk buck-to-doe ratios. What does that mean? Sure. Okay. That, those are those are. Really good question. So one of the one of the biggest misconceptions and the hardest thing that Kent and I deal with in communicating with the public is that there's a, there's a couple things. One, the number of deer on the landscape does determine the number of buck permits you can have. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. More deer, more bucks, more permits. Sure. But the no, it's not the inverse isn't true, or the number of buck hunters on the landscape doesn't determine what the population level is at. You know, when deer are growing in Utah, we we rarely kill those. We don't mm -hmm. harvest. We don't have a lot of doe harvest. In fact, we don't have enough doe harvest at any level to have a population level impact. So we have some targeted hunts in problem areas. Um, right. But when you look at harvesting bucks to a level that would start to negatively impact a population, you'd have to be down somewhere below eight. 
bucks mm. per hundred does. So a buck doe ratio, it's when you go out and take a sampling effort, we do it during the breeding season. So mm-hmm. when bucks are present with those, um, and it's just, it's just a, it's not a census, but it's just a, a representative sample of what's on the landscape. Yeah. And as long as you meet those thresholds, as long as you have eight plus bucks per hundred does as a, as a lower biological threshold, every doe is going to have a chance to be covered. Mm-hmm. Right? To, to be bred. To be bred. Mm-hmm. And so that's what determines population growth is are your does surviving? Are they getting bred? And are your fawns surviving? Right? Mm-hmm. And buck hunting is just something we get to do as hunters because we have deer on the landscape. Yeah. More deer, more bucks, higher buck doe ratios, more stratification you have in your age. Right? Sure. But it doesn't necessarily. Here's a perfect example. Henry Mountains, mm-hmm. awesome population. Fire down there, deer take off. That population goes crazy. Big bucks everywhere. We manage that population. At, uh, we try to manage it around 50 bucks per hundred does. Yep. Really, really high. The last several years with these droughts, it's been hit hard. Mm-hmm. And so we watch. We had fondle ratios in the in the mid to upper 80s for years after the fire, and now we're down with fondle ratios. Can what? what I, I think it was upper 30s this past year. Oh, wow. And, that, and that's directly drought-related, but right. it's also it's just indicative of, of where we're at with that population. I sure. Mean, it was running highest in the state because of that fire. Right. And it was awesome, but I think some of that, that fire is starting to mature a little bit mm-hmm. more than, so we, we kind of need to reset it a little bit, mm-hmm. hopefully get that population going. But during these drought years, it's just the vegetation is not of the quality that, that so what's the be. what's the biggest negative then about too high of a bucktail ratio? Like, what if you went... Yeah really big with it so, so have crashing populations there, there's some couple there's a couple really good papers published out of colorado that show exactly that that and and just just to be sure there's still great quality on the henry's mm-hmm. but what we see is that population is declining and you can have great quality and a declining population just by limiting buck harvest yeah because a, a buck's not going to reproduce so if you've got a buck which is essentially a mouth on the landscape and it's eating food it's it's not going to produce a fawn like a doe would so yeah. if, if you replace that buck with a doe that doe has yeah. the opportunity to reproduce so it's in essence if you want a population to grow a lower buck to doe ratio is pro- probably beneficial it, right? it, it is beneficial so anytime you have a population that is nutritionally limited so if you're bumping up against drought or mm-hmm. forage quality or some kind of nutritional limitation and you run high buck doe ratios you will inevitably reduce your fawn doe ratios right and and so and you set yourself up over time running these high buck doe ratios you set yourself up for more catastrophic losses and less gains right so if if conditions line up and everything changes and you get good spring moisture great monsoonal moisture you've got food on the landscape but half your animals are bucks, mm-hmm. that's the rate you grow at. Sure. Yeah, yeah. makes yeah. sense. It's, a, it's, a, it's kind of a, a tough, it's kind of a tough road to hoe. I mean, it's, it's a hard management where you're trying to manage for, you know, a potential age class or trophy potential for somebody that's drawn a permit that took them 20 plus years to, to, to get and then, you know, provide that type of hump, but then also provide a, a growing, healthy herd. Uh, on a time like now, where you've got drought, it's you, you have a tough job. I mean, I knew you had a tough job before, <laughs> but you do have a tough job. I'm just re- reinforcing that for you guys because I know that you do. You know, and, and it's hard because expectations are different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. for everyone. Yeah. So some folks just want to hunt. 
Sure. And, and they're okay with a two-year-old buck. And there's nothing wrong with that or a, year, a yearling buck. And others expect that higher quality. Mm-hmm. And I think you combine that with the longer you wait, the higher quality you start to expect. Sure. It took me 10 years to draw. It took me 20 years to draw. And now all of a sudden. Yeah, your expectations grow with it, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah interesting. Tough, tough job. You know, it's a lot of fun, too. Like, mm-hmm. like we, we are lucky. We, we get to do things that nobody else gets to do. And we get, to, we get to live something that we're passionate about every day. Yeah. You know, I, I, we both love deer. Like, love managing deer, mm-hmm. research on deer, just learning more about populations. And we're learning all the time. Like, sure. Yeah, back to when I worked for the division, I mean, I remember, you know, going to, to deer captures, and we can jump into that maybe as a jump-off talk about collar, the collar studies, and the kind of data that you guys are, you know, gleaning from that and where it goes and, and, and best use case of it. But, I mean, I remember going to those, and, I mean, those those people, they're there because they love it. I mean, it's, you know, they're passionate about wildlife and, and seeing it in, you know, perpetuity for, for generations to come, you know, as an opportunity to hunt. Um, you know, and just to see. So I know that you guys are, I definitely know you're not in it for the paycheck. <laughs> <laughs> I know that you're in it for the love of it. I know that for a fact. So. Yeah. But, yeah, I mean, let's talk about collars. And, I, I mean, you've had a, a pretty extensive collar study, I know, going on in Utah. Kent, can you yeah. kind of work through some of that and where that came from and what kind of data you're trying to learn from it? So we, we've probably been going pretty big on the collar studies for 10 plus years now started off with vhf monitoring survival so we'd get pretty coarse data but we'd understand hey here's what the rates are you probably get data points like every six you know every couple months but yeah and what was the i mean what was the the, the need like what, what why did we get into collars i mean what it, the initial start was just to, to understand what our populations doing are they growing are they declining what are our levels we, we mm-hmm. couldn't even identify that we were kind of using uh, the metrics that were collected by surrounding states mainly colorado idaho wyoming and we didn't have data from utah so it was initially started just to say hey what are our rates here how do they compare are we the same are we different what are what's going on mm-hmm. um, and that, that gave you that course data but it, it didn't tell you what was really going on it just tell it told you you know are you growing are you declining but why was missing so uh, with GPS technology, as it evolved, we started doing GPS collars, which uh, transmit. They take a point, GPS point, and they transmit everything through satellite. So we actually get emails when animals stop moving and start, and so it tells us they died. Mm-hmm. And we started that in 2014. Uh, and that allowed us to, to really focus on not only, hey, this animal died and how many died, but we could go in and determine, you know, we knew when it died. And we could go in right away, figure out why it died. Was it malnutrition? Was mm-hmm. it a vehicle strike? Was it uh, cougars, coyotes, whatever it might have been? But then, so we once you get that for a whole year, you said, hey, this population had 10 animals die of malnutrition. We, we must have some sort of a habitat yeah. or some sort of a weather issue going. Or, hey, these animals are, are great. Uh, malnutrition's not an issue, but, man, cougars are laying them down. Mm-hmm. Um, we can go in and we can adjust cougar permits to try and address right. that problem. And so that's what the collars do. But when we're catching them, we also are getting um, how fat they are, body condition, what we'll also refer to as ingestive-free body fat. But that's basically how much fat they've been able to put on during the summer and fall and how, how good they are entering winter. The fatter these deer are, the, the better they're going to live. There's a direct relationship there. Um, at least from a malnutrition standpoint. Cougars, whether you're fat or skinny, it doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> They're going to take better. it. But um, we can understand, you know, hey, uh, these deer are entering fat. They should be living really well, and that also then relates to their 
farm production the next year. The fatter you are, the more likely to have twins, the more likely they are to live, and the better they're going to grow. So right. we start getting all this data, and you know what we found is every unit's different. Unfortunately, Utah's a really diverse state. Uh, you know, desert to northern Rockies. Um, and even units right next door have different things going on. So one unit might be driven by predation, one's uh, malnutrition, mm -hmm. and they could be right next to each other. The, the Monroe versus the Boulder is a great example sure. of that. Um, so it allows us to look at what these limiting factors are, and we can target management directly towards those units. Mm -hmm. And it can really help. If, if obviously, if, you're, you know, if your problem is predation, but you're focusing everything on... Uh, or if your problem's lion predation, you're focusing everything on coyotes, you're not addressing the problem, so you're not going to see anything turn around. Sure. That. And that, it's, it allows us to, to do the appropriate management action. Right. Or if you're, you're focusing your habitat on winter range, and, you know, your winter range is in decent shape, but maybe your summer range is, is, mm -hmm. is being neglected. Exactly. You know? It's like the boulder. It's just straight conifer from, <laughs> you know, the complete top and, and no feet. Yeah. And that's what's interesting. We saw Monroe thing. You know, they're coming into winter in pretty good shape, and, and that was one of our longer-term monitoring units. So we, uh, as part of our migration initiative, we did the boulder, um, I believe, in 2019 for mm -hmm. the first time. And then they were a lot skinnier than Monroe, right next door. Similar moisture patterns going on, but it, it did appear it's a uh, primarily a summer range issue there. But then they also had a lot of cougar predation on right. top of it. So you had you had skinny deer, but you had predation. So that's a situation where you could fix one of the two, but unless you fix both, you're probably not right. going to get the results. But how cool is it to have that data available to you now, right? It's I mean, unreal. It's you know, it it's <clears throat> I don't know. Can't we? At, at, at any, any point during the day, you can stop, pull up where every collared animal is. Within a few clicks of a button, you can see how it's used the range. Um, we can stop. We can go look at cause-specific mortality for any herd unit that we have collars on and see what those limiting factors are. I mean, these are types of data that uh, when we talk to our collaborators again, they're, they're super jealous of. Mm -hmm. Like Utah is very unique. Um, we're very lucky. We've got some great partnerships. So Kent has, Kent, Kent won't brag on himself, so I'll do it for a second. <laughs> Kent has cultivated a partnership with some research professors at BYU to run our deer survival studies. Mm -hmm. You know, Brock McMillan, yeah, Brock. Randy Larson. And we have, be, because of that relationship, because of everybody pushing in the same direction, we have the most robust deer, mule deer data set in the West. Oh, most so awesome. we oh, have the, the the biggest, most robust mule deer data set in the West, um, which is great because it's I mean, it's awesome. yeah, growing up in Utah, I mean, Utah is mule deer, right? Yeah. I mean, growing up, that's what we did. I mean, we went out f hunting deer. It was a big deal when I, I was in. I mean, I, I'm I'll probably date myself here, but like I remember even being in high school, we got a day off for the deer hunt. Yeah. Oh yeah. And it wasn't called fall break. It was called deer hunt. Deer hunt. You yeah. know you. <laughs> Yeah. It was a day off for the deer hunt. So, yeah, deer, mule deer in Utah, I mean, are synony you know, synonymous one with another. That's, that's why we take it serious, I think, and that's why you guys are so passionate about it. Absolutely. You know, Trill, and I, I, I think I want to say something else before we move on, too, and that is that this is all possible, again, through partnerships. Like, we're sitting here at the, the Hunt Expo. Yeah. If it weren't for the conservation groups in Utah, if it weren't for the conservation permit program, if it weren't for, you know, SFW, MDF, RMEF, Utah Archery Association, if it weren't for all these groups, and I hope I haven't left one of the partners out, mm -hmm. we couldn't do this because we have, we're able to fund these projects, fund this research, fund this management at a different level 
because of these partners. So we're super grateful. We're, yeah. we're grateful for this expo. We're grateful for the sportsmen of our state and the conservation permit program and the sacrifice that that is to be able to provide funding for this type of management. Yeah, and I, I agree with you wholeheartedly. I mean, the, the partnership and the things that are of, you know, possible because of it. I mean, I've seen the habitat, my former job, you know, being working for the, the Division of Wildlife as a, as a habitat biologist. I got to see the money go into the ground. You know, I saw the winter range and the summer range, the burns, the receding. Um, it's, it's unique. It's to, unique. To Utah, and that's one thing I've learned, like, you know, kind of stepping outside and working for Go Hunt. You know, I've, I've hunted a whole bunch of states, and I've talked to, you know, I spent a week with uh, Jim Heffelfinger, you mm -hmm. know, in, in Arizona and talking mule deer management in different states. And I've been to Wyoming and talked to biologists. Like, it's it's incredible what we've got here in Utah. Like, this show that we're at and the money that's going to be raised and, you know, the research that will be done, the habitat work that, it, that gets done. Like, it isn't ha happening in, in other places. We're, I mean... This it's is it, it. It's it. I mean, this is incredible. Yeah, it's it's awesome. Yeah. yeah. I think um, one of the coolest things from my perspective that, that comes from it is instead of spending time, we used to spend times just butting heads about what was even going on, and everybody would have their own ideas. Mm -hmm. uh, and now we can we can agree on what's going on. We can all look at the data and say, here's the problems. Now how can we yeah. come up with solutions? Yeah, you have the data. You can look at it. Yeah. And so, yeah, we're, we're fighting. Or we're not fighting. We're, we're discussing how we best address it rather than just what the problem is. Yeah. And at least now when we do fight, we fight about data. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah, you're, you're fighting about facts, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. At, least, yeah. at least now when we do have a disagreement, it's about data it's instead of about what may be. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's like everything. I mean, you know, we're launching, you know, Go Hunt. We have maps now. We have 3D maps on our phones. I mean, technology. I mean, we could, we could go down a rabbit hole talking about technology. But, like, you know, added technology, callers, data, it, it all – it all helps, you know, comes back. It's it's great to see. Yeah. Yeah. Super, super cool. Wait, what we're up to now is these callers are taking a point every two hours. So we know essentially real time what they, and this, I mean, you go back 20 years, it was if you got 30 locations on an animal in its life, you would. Sure. Cause every get, couple of months yeah. it was pinging a location back then, and now it's, well, it's every two it's hours. It's always on, but you had to use an airplane to track it down and all that. It was uh, just a ton of work to do it, and now we're getting that number of points in a day and a half. <laughs> So, so then as a, as a guy who's just curious about it, like how many callers do you actually kind of need to have on a herd to be able to say, like, that is the trend that's possibly going on? Is there a specific number based on yeah, animal so populations? It, or? It's, it's always a balance between data quality and cost. It costs yeah, a lot cost. to do all this. So our goal for adults, for monitoring the, the adults on the population, we try and go with 50 on each unit. I think statistically we can get away with about 30. It's kind of okay. a magic number in statistics. Um, but we go up, we want a little bit better of an estimate, so we try and maintain about 50. Gives us a good estimate of what they're surviving at, but then that also, enough of those animals are dying so we can get a good idea of what, um, what's killing them. Mm -hmm. For fawns, we go with 20. Uh, it's a, it gives us a ballpark of whether it was good, medium, or, or high survival, and it limits the capture cost and the collar cost each month. Mm -hmm. the, the, the nice thing about Adults is you only have to color them every so often. Fawns you got to do them every year, so it does drive sure. up the cost quite yep. a bit. But um, yeah, on average, and then overall across the state, right now we have I don't know twelve hundred or so, twelve fifteen hundred mule deer on the air. 
Collard. Collard, my dear, yeah. Also. Can't, what do we put on <laughs> annually on average? Yeah. And then, beer, yeah, for deer, this past year we put on, I think, 732 was the exact 732 number. 732 collars. Between a, that's adult does, uh, some of those are bucks as well, and then about 200 fawns. And you're also looking at elk too, right? I mean, you've got collars on elk as well? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. different area of the state we have elk too. We've so had some really big elk studies. We don't have a really, really big elk study right now. but Nothing huge, but I think we're going to collar a couple hundred elk this year. Overall this year, it's about 1,000 animals that we'll collar uh, and monitor. <laughs> so, But we're somewhere uh, up between 1,000 and 1,400 collars every year. Wow. Um, which is unreal. That is so, a lot of data. Yeah. <laughs> So, yeah. Brady loves data. I do. <laughs> I love peeking out any little bit of data I can get my hands Brady on. Brady and Kent could just like sit and crunch data and look at data together. They would they would dig that. Brady's a big data. I'll we'll have to have you guys over and, and show you a wildlife tracker. Oh, yeah. Show you some of the tools Sweet. and animations and things you can create with it. Yeah, that would be cool. Do you guys do any kind of public outreach with that? Like do collar wise, like let people jump in and, and look at a collar and see what a deer's done or an elk. Yeah. I'm sure that's you know, some of it's case sensitive, but like Sure. Yeah, obviously we have we can't do it all, but we are sure. we're working towards that. We're developing the interface right now so that we can have a few animals that people can log on and follow and that'd be really cool. It's always walking that line of it is protected data, sure. right? The exact point locations are protected, and that's because it's it's just not fair, especially in a hunting world. It is world. not fair, yeah. We don't so. want to, yeah, yeah. you know. Yeah. We'll so. never put a buck on for live data, yeah. I promise that. Exactly. <laughs> call her the 180-inch buck. Yeah. Just, <laughs> the other thing is, is like we use this data a lot more with our, with our federal partners, municipalities, cities, and counties, so that when we have development, we can do it in the right ways, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Say, hey, look... It, we understand this is private property. We understand it's going to be developed. We understand whatever. And just so as, as we do this, so you understand, here are the migration corridors. Mm-hmm. Does here, that data be used a lot for that type of stuff, like buildings and development? We're starting to use it more and more. And, and it's been received really well. Like it's, the Division of Wildlife is not the hammer. We're not going to come in and shut somebody down. It's not who we are. Mm-hmm. But when we have information, People have been really grateful at least have it and understand yeah. it. Mm-hmm. And what we find more of is, is folks coming to us saying, we want to develop this and we want to preserve the wildlife corridors. Could you help us? That's cool to have that forethought to like reach out because now people are like understanding how important it is. Like yeah. Once we lose it, we lose it. Yeah. yeah. Yep. And, and that's what we find. Like it's, uh, we want to do this responsibly. Will you help us? Yeah, let's put on some colors. Even to the, even to the point of sometimes helping fund the projects to say, yeah. Well, just before we do anything, let's make sure we do it right. So, no, that's great. Anything else? You have other questions, Brady? No, that was I was just being a sponge and soaking up everything right there. <laughs> like, no joke. I love this stuff so much. I got a question. Maybe you don't know the answer. Maybe I'll, I'll throw it out there. But since I like big bucks, you're at big antlers, right? So, and we we talked a little bit about nutrition and what it can do for a fawn. Like, what what does it do for antler development? We get that question a lot. You know, mm. I. I mean, what do you optimally need? I know there's been some papers coming out recently, like about um, the mother, right? And yeah. Her nutrition yeah. level. Freeman's you, paper. Yeah. Have you read much about yeah. it? Do you, so, can you speak to it? I think there's two big factors that people need to realize. So it starts when that buck is just a fetus, when it's in utero and it's growing. So that doe needs to enter winter, good, fat, and healthy. So when she gets pregnant, uh, that fetus grows well and it grows well over winter if she gets really stressed over winter then that buck will not it, some of its potential will be taken right there before it even hits before the ground. it even hits the ground and then and then to, based on how much milk that 
that doe is producing that determines how big that fawn's going to grow from June birth through its first six months of life. And so all of it, all of that right there is just about how well that doe is producing and how good a shape she's in. And then, then the buck does its own thing and it becomes some genetics, some uh, what moisture you're going to get and what vegetation growth you have in the spring when it starts just first growing those antlers. So that's it, it's that time frame from April, May, mm-hmm. uh, start putting on fat, getting all the reserves to grow antlers, and then allow it to grow through that summertime. Right. So all that spring-summer moisture becomes real important at that point. That's incredible, isn't it, it for, for a buck to hit the potential, I mean, of what a, a buck could be. I mean, it, it starts before it's even born. It's mm-hmm. crazy. So you, you think about it like your average mule deer is just over 160 inches. That's it. That's their prime. That's, that's their max. That's me, right? That's some dude that's 5'8", <laughs> right? And so... So, but handsome as hell. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so for every for every Kobe Jones, how many Yao Ming's are there, right? right? Mm-hmm. And so th- that's what like it you're is. You're dating yourself with Yao Ming. I mean. <laughs> <laughs> you got, you're the Yao Ming in this scenario. <laughs> <laughs> so you've got to have, you know, it it you've got to have so many things line up. And we hear about genetics a lot, and it's probably the one we know the least about and have the least control over, right? Yeah. Yeah. In a wild population, impacting mule deer genetics is impossible. In a ranch situation, absolutely. You find the does that throw big bucks. You find the bucks that are big. You put those together, and you can change the game. Mm -hmm. You cannot do that in the wild. So the things that line up are, obviously, there's a genetic component. But age, you know, a deer needs to be at least four. Mm-hmm. That's a big one. It needs to start out right. They put so much calcium on top of their head during that time they're growing bone, mm-hmm. they can't ingest it all. So they're mining it from their own source, right? Right. And so when Kent talks about in utero, they've got to set up that bone structure, that skeletal structure to where they have the mine to pull the calcium from. So they the, can pull it to antlers versus bone structure. Yeah, right? that, they, they, they come out healthy. They're they, healthier when they're that, born. That's right. They're healthier when they're born. They set up a good mind. They set up a good bone structure. They're heavier going into winter that first year mm-hmm. because antler growth is a secondary growth characteristic. Right. Right? It's only going to happen after all the other needs are met. So if you're spending your life struggling, just try to meet those other needs, you're never going to put that bone on top of your head. Mm-hmm. You know, but when all that lines up, yeah, yeah. yeah. you get some good deer. Yeah. What's it looking like this year? I mean, should, should my application be, Ooh. I should be really banking points and Can't you take looking that? for three years down uh, the road got, based on this year? i got points so I should burn if I need to. This year, we're, we're cautiously optimistic, I'll okay. say that. So it, um, I think as most people saw this past hunting season, populations are down, as we mentioned. Sure. Farm production is certainly down. So I would not expect a ton of yearlings on the landscape next year. Mm-hmm. Um, but the good news is, the, the deer that came in this year, were they were really fat. They were healthy. It's a combination of we had some good monsoonal rains and also the ones that did lose a fawn, well, that allows them to put on more fat and do better. Yeah. So they are, we've had a light winter so far. We actually have some pretty good moisture up there considering how few storms we've had. But it hasn't been hard, so survival is good, and they should be putting out good fawns. So <laughs> I would say... 2022 fawn year is good. Give them, what, 2026? Should yeah. Be should bank, be really good year. <laughs> bank your points, Brady, as a no, non-resident. 2026. Right. That could be the record year right uh. there. But, it, you know, but then it's going to depend on what, what happens this spring. We can't predict that. Exactly. Obviously. You can never predict any of that and, thing. And, uh. Trail, whenever people ask me that, I always say, hunt what you can. Because, yeah. like, man, you just don't know. Like, no. there's always a few big bucks taken, even on the worst of years. Sure. So, 
I'd rather have a tag in my pocket than sit at home. I think that's why I don't bank points. I burn them as fast as I can because yeah. like, I want to be out there hunting. The more hunts you're on, the better chance you got to kill on that monster. Yeah, a lot of averages. A lot of averages. Yeah, the better you become at it as well. One time it just lines up, man. Mm-hmm. You had a good hunt here recently. You had an elk tag, right? Archery yeah. elk tag, yeah. first archery bull. Is that right? That's my first ar- first archery bull. Was yes. that just this last year? It was. It was two years two. ago. But man, what a what a ride! You know, it's it's not an easy hunt in Utah. It's early. It was the earliest ever that year. Yeah, that's when it was on the early year, and sixteen days. Oh, that's a grinder. Sixteen days. <laughs> I uh, I was driving down the freeway on like day fifteen, and um. Uh, I was with one of my, one of our buddies, uh, Rusty Robinson and Riley Peck, and this love song came on, and I just started to cry. <laughs> and I'm like, "What in the hell is wrong with me?" You know, I'm driving down the road we'll to go hunt. For the that record, night. we ask that a lot. <laughs> <laughs> but until you've experienced that, until you've experienced, until you've experienced day 16 of a hunt, like oh, you have there. no clue. Yeah. Um, Especially a bow hunt, and oh. I think I know the unit that you hunted. And there's some steep, deep country. Like you, you, you definitely put some miles on and earn that. Every morning, glass them up. You drop at least a thousand feet to climb at least twelve hundred, and then back again, and then yeah. back again. And it was every day you're an elk, yeah. straight elk. But you know how it is with a bow, man. Yeah, it's got to line up ten times to get it to happen once. Yeah. So yeah, everything has to go just right. So, but yeah, but I, I, I guess I'm super grateful for the experience. Yeah, you know. And always looking forward to the next hunt. Always scheming. Always trying to find my next hunt. So, yeah, I love the fact that you hunt. It's cool. Yeah, it's it's fun to it's fun to have an agency, you know, with employees that that are in it as much as they're, they're personal. They love it. Yeah. They love to hunt. Yeah. I mean, I know yeah. so many guys that work for the division. You know, they're in it because of the love of wildlife and they love to hunt as well, which is awesome. Yeah. I relate. You know, it's, yeah, it's yeah, easy. Absolutely. To relate. <laughs> <laughs> I, absolutely, I can buddy. relate. Every hunter can appreciate that. Yeah. Oh, cool. Anything else, Brady, you wanted to hit these guys with? You got their air. No, I don't think so. I appreciate you guys coming on. It was cool. I mean, I just wanted a chance to, to talk mule deer with a couple of guys that I know. Yeah. You know, love mule deer, and we're here at the Expo in Utah. What a cool No cool better event. place to talk about mule deer than at the Hunt Expo. That's right. Any, and any time, man. We love it. Thank you. Yeah, we appreciate all the hard work you guys do. I know that you, you know, sometimes it can feel a little bit thankless just because there's you know, you're expected to deliver a product for, you know, a, a public that is very passionate about, you know, wildlife. And I know it can be, it can be really hard to navigate those waters. I've seen it firsthand, but you, I think you guys have both done an excellent job. I mean, I've known Kobe forever, you know, Ken as well. I think you guys are super genuine and you did, you care and, you know, you're in the job for the right reasons. I think you do a phenomenal job. So thanks, man. I, I appreciate, appreciate it. it. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm proud to be a, a resident of the state of Utah and the, <laughs> the job that you guys do for wildlife. So we're glad to have you, man. Thanks for thanks for popping. Hey, we in. appreciate everything. This was an amazing podcast. Yeah, thanks, guys. Cool. Thank you. Yep. yep.